Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. Just once, you know, I, one sermon I'd love to preach with that voice. All right. We are in the third week of a series leading us up to Holy Week, wherein we are exploring uh, the Holy Week events that show up in all four Gospels but don't get the attention that the traditional Holy Week passages do. So, We've looked at Jesus anointed, Jesus arrested, and now this week, Jesus arraigned. And even those words together, Jesus arraigned, those two words should never appear together. Um, An arraignment, of course, is is that weighty moment when uh, the defendant is brought before the court to officially uh, receive, hear the charges brought against them. And that, in essence, is what is taking place In our passage, there are two courts at play uh, with Jesus and his sentencing. The first is this Jewish court from today that's essentially an arraignment, uh, trying to bring charges. But they don't have the power to execute the sentence. That has to go to the Roman courts to pile it. And so this is them bringing Jesus and trying to uh, find charges against him. And that, um, that is a ridiculous... Um, thought. What charges can possibly be brought against a sinless man? And yet our passage ends, as you heard, with a guilty verdict, a death sentence, and a sinless man being handed over to guards mocking him. But that, as, as ridiculous as that thought might be, it is not as ridiculous as you and me facing this very same moment, and them finding nothing, absolutely nothing to charge us with, which is, of course, the greater story being told in our passage and being told what we call Holy Week. There's a little Christian cliche that uh, has been popularized by Dave Ramsey, the uh, Christian talk show host some of you may be familiar with. You know, people call into a show and they always ask, how you doing, Dave? And, and his coined response that he uses every time is, better than I deserve. And this has become popular among a lot of Christians to say when somebody asks, how you doing, better than I deserve, better than I deserve. And, and, it, and I get it, and Christians get it, um, because that is what we believe. We are always better than we deserve. But have we un- ever wondered if that's an okay thing? Meaning, we are essentially admitting an injustice when we say better than I deserve. I'll put it this way. Let me explain this way. 
So Dave Ramsey's show is all about helping people get rid of their financial debt. That's kind of his shtick. And suppose, um, suppose I was to call in and say, hey, Dave, how you doing? And he says, better than I deserve. And I say, well, that's interesting you say that because I have decided that I want to be treated better than I deserve. I have all this debt and I want it gone. And Dave Ramsey would do his thing. He'd say, great, you know, follow my plan. You can get rid of debt. To which I would say, no, you're not understanding me here. I don't want to actually pay off my debt. I just want to be treated better than I deserve. What I deserve is to be held accountable for the debt that I have accumulated, but I am choosing the better than I deserve financial plan, and I'm just going to live debt-free from now on. Ramsey would laugh me off of his show, and rightfully so, because it doesn't work that way. It can't work that way. Justice will not allow it to work that way. Now, we recognize that when it comes to something as trivial as our finances. But then, we Christians flippantly assume that it's okay for us to be treated better than we deserve with our ultimate debt of sin and justice. Our gospel is crazy, is what I'm trying to say. Our gospel is crazy. We proclaim free grace that can and will forgive any and all sinful debt. The holy mountain of justice that stands against every single one of us, just gone. We just act like it's just gone. How is that possible? How is that fair? How is that just? The answer is before us this morning in our passage. We are going to see two trials here. Two judgment days, so to speak. And you are going to be invited to choose between the two. In one trial, Jesus receives what you deserve. In the other trial, Jesus executes what you deserve. Let's look at the first, where Jesus receives what we deserve. 53. They led Jesus to the high priest, all the chief priests, the elders, the scribes came together. So Jesus is before the Jewish court known as the Sanhedrin. And Mark notes that every member of the Sanhedrin was there. The high priest, the chief priests, the elders, the teachers, the scribes of the law. Now that was very unusual to have everybody together for one event. And what we are meant to see in that is what they've essentially done is they've brought every expert of the law, of God's law, together to perform an inquisition of sorts, to find something to condemn this man. Verse 55 says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They want to put him to death. They've got the verdict in mind, and they just got to find a way to do it. Just something anything they can possibly find against this man, surely by the high standards of Jewish law, there's something they can find. So they get all the experts of the law together and they're just going to find it. But finish the verse. But they found none. And they find nothing because there's nothing to be found. Verse 56, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. What is supposed to be, what you're supposed to see there is that this whole scene is comical. It's laughable. 
false witnesses coming forward, making accusations. None of their stories are lining up. They're twisting words that he has said, trying to make it into something that is not. That's not lining up. And that's why Jesus doesn't have to defend himself. Verse 60, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? 61, he remained silent and made no answer. Meaning, I'm not dignifying these ridiculous charges with an answer. This is a man so confident in his innocence that he doesn't even need to offer a defense. So here's what's going on. They are literally examining perfection, trying to find an imperfection. In fact, it's even more ridiculous than that. He isn't just perfect. He is the definition of perfection. In other words, how do we know what moral perfection is? What is the ultimate standard of right and wrong? Biblically, the answer is Jesus. Jesus is literally the originating source of morality. What makes hatred wrong? Jesus. Jesus is love, thus hatred is wrong. What makes lying wrong? Jesus. Jesus is truth, thus lying is wrong. What makes stealing wrong? Jesus. Jesus is just, therefore stealing is wrong. Do you see the law of God is not this arbitrarily contrived thing. The law of God is the application of the essence of God And the full essence of God is found in the flesh of Jesus. What is morally right? Everything that Jesus is. What is morally wrong? Everything that Jesus is not. So they are literally examining Jesus according to the law of his own essence. And so the high priest finally just asks, Are you the Christ? The Son of the Most High? Now to that, he will speak. 62. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. We're going to return to that statement in a moment. But what you need to know is that Jesus has, in no uncertain terms, just claimed to be their God. He invokes two major Old Testament identities. The first is a simple answer, I am. That is how God famously refers to himself in the Exodus account. I am who I am. Tell them I am sent me. And then that strange language of son of man coming on the clouds of heaven, what is that? That comes from Daniel's prophetic words where um, he sees the coming apocalyptic judgment of God as a figure he calls the son of man. Simply put, this is Jesus making the ultimate claim. You people are examining your God. And that explains their reaction. Verse 63. The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. They no longer need witnesses. They no longer need evidence. By claiming to be God, Jesus has committed blasphemy of the highest order, and they condemn him to death. Now, he doesn't deserve death because he actually is telling the truth. But shockingly, Jesus yields to what he does not deserve. Why? Why? To offer you what you do not deserve. Jesus is treated eternally worse than he deserves so that we can indeed say, yes, I am forever better than I deserve. How is it fair for sins 
to go unpunished. We who cry justice in the streets, how is it fair for injustice to not be met with justice? Biblically, we will say that that will never, has never, and will never happen. My day of judgment took place 2,000 years ago when Jesus stood trial and received the verdict I deserve. My sins have not escaped judgment. It's just that my Jesus has received my judgment. The gospel does not offer a suspension of justice. The gospel takes justice very seriously. It does not suspend justice. It offers a substitute for justice. It offers Jesus, who by sheer grace and mercy is willing to receive our condemnation to offer us the blessed Romans 8.1 promise, there is therefore now no condemnation. That's the offer, friends. That's the offer. This trial in our passage can be your judgment day. Meaning, your judgment day can now be complete. Over. No judgment left for you. Or, or you can choose the other trial that is approaching with every fleeting breath. I said there are two judgment days in our text. I want to now speak to the other. The other option is that you can go at this alone. You can have your own day in court before Jesus himself. Instead of having Jesus as your substitute, you can have Jesus as your judge. So we've seen Jesus receive the judgment you deserve. Now let's look at G- and see Jesus execute the judgment that you deserve and I deserve. Return to verse 62. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Again, this is apocalyptic imagery from the book of Daniel. And I certainly don't have time to dive into the depths of the imagery. All we need to know this morning is that at his own trial, Jesus promised to return, this time not to stand trial, but to try the entire earth. To be the judge of the living and the dead, to use the language of our creed. He will be seated at the right hand of power. That's the seat of authority and justice. He is saying that he will come in clouds of heaven. That is heaven invading earth. And on that day, he will be the ultimate judge of all existence. So, friends, I love you very much. And I love you enough to tell you the truth. And the truth is this. Judgment is coming. I understand we inhabit a culture that rejects that idea as abhorrent. And yet every day that same culture demands that it be true. Oh, the irony of a merciless cancel culture that then turns around and demands exemption from divine justice. Listen to me. The reason why all of us have this deep-seated sense of justice of right and wrong, of that should not be, or that should be. The reason why every single one of us passes judgment all day, every day, is because God created us that way and our existence that way. The reason why you rightfully get angry when something wrong takes place, particularly when it happens to you or those you love, is because you know deep down, you know justice is real and demanded. But the problem is this. 
You're now trapped, and so am I. The problem with acknowledging justice is that in so doing, we condemn ourselves. That's Paul's logic. Paraphrasing Paul, you who judge others, do you expect to escape judgment? If you live as if there is a standard of justice, and all of us do, then we are simultaneously condemning ourselves because we fall so short of the justice we demand of the world. So, you get angry when you're lied to? You should. Have you lied? You get angry when you're slandered? Good, you should. Have you slandered? You get angry when you are harmed or those you loved are harmed? Good, you should. Have you harmed others? Do you see? You can't have it both ways when it comes to this thing called justice. You can't demand justice and then demand to be the exception. Either justice is illusory and everyone ultimately escapes it. If that's the case, then quit living as if justice is a thing. But you can't. Because justice is a reality and everyone must face it. What cannot be is justice is real from everyone else except for me. Now, that's my apologetic, but at the end of the day... It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you want or what I want. It isn't yours to decide. God is just in 62, verse 62 promises that he is coming to judge. And if you want to know what that will be like, look no further than our passage. Everyone will stand before Jesus and he will do to us what was done to him. He will examine you to see if there is any reason to condemn you. With every jot and tittle of the law of God, you will be examined with the utmost precision. How do you think that's going to go for you? It will be for you like it will be for me. That trial will be as ridiculous as the trial in our passage, but for the opposite reason. Ridiculous not because there's no evidence against me. Ridiculous because where do we even start with the evidence? But Jesus will start. Every thought, every word, every deed, every intention, every motivation, every evil done, every good left undone, all of it laid bare before the court of heaven, examined by holiness. And nobody on that day will have a reason to be angry with Jesus. One, Because he's only giving you what you have spent your whole life demanding from the world. Like I already said, again, you who judge, do you really expect to escape judgment? Who are we to tell God we get to judge, but he doesn't get to? But even more so, are we allowed to get mad at Jesus for judging when he himself has offered to receive the judgment we deserve? Friends, in point one, I literally just told you the good news that Jesus will receive what you deserve If you reject that offer, then you will have no reason to get mad at Jesus when he comes to judge. Don't give me the, well, what about the people who haven't heard that offer? Deflection. I will leave that to Jesus. Your problem is that you're listening now. Whether in person or online, you're listening, which means you've heard, which means you are without excuse. Henceforth, to reject Jesus is to choose to go at this thing called justice alone. Just don't get mad when the judge who offered to take your day in court, honors your request to have your own day in court before him. So friends, here is my simple yet eternally significant application for us today. Choose this day your judgment day. 
You have two options. Jesus will stand trial for you, or you will stand trial before Jesus. Either way, justice will be served. Or will it? You see, this all leads to another issue with this thing called justice. How is it fair? How is it fair for the innocent one to receive what the guilty deserve and for the guilty to receive what the innocent one deserves? Does anybody know any courtroom that would allow that? Well, the answer to that question and what we will be seeing in the coming weeks is that Jesus wasn't merely punished for the sins of his people. That would be unjust. Instead, Jesus took upon himself the sins of his people and was punished as such. Our assurance of pardon does not read, God made him who knew no sin to be punished for our sin. Our assurance of pardon reads, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin, and then bearing our sin, he was justly punished in our stead. And justice was done. And that is how we who hope in Christ can know for certain that there is no judgment left for us. A word of application to the many of us here who have entrusted our judgment day to Jesus. Weighty sermon. I think it's fitting as we enter into Holy Week to bear this weight. But I think we need a word. I think we need a word of assurance. I would like to proclaim to you the blessed assurance of what theologians refer to as imputation. Jesus wasn't punished for your sins. Jesus became your sins and then was punished as such. As Martin Luther provocatively said, Jesus became the worst sinner who ever lived and he was treated that way. And the reason why that matters is because your actual failures, your actual regrets that you have brought into this room Your actual sins have had an actual day in court and have actually been punished, which means there actually isn't anything left for you. I think our fears of condemnation is that we are rooted in the fact that we cannot imagine God just kind of passing over or just turning away from or or simply just forgiving our sins all that we've done we know we've done we know the shame we know the sins we just can't imagine God just saying oh it's okay you're thinking wrongly God didn't just forgive it he punished it when Jesus cries it is finished what he means there actually is that it's finished Every sin you have ever committed and every sin you will ever commit has already been to trial. Has already met its just condemnation. Your case is closed. There is no double jeopardy in the courts of heaven. It truly is just all over. So can it be over in the court of your conscience? It's over in the courts of heaven. Can it be over in the court of your mind? Why, Christian? Why must you spend your days taking yourself to trial and condemning what has already been condemned? Why are you trying to reopen a case that has been dead for 2,000 years? For heaven's sake, would you just let it die because it did die with Jesus? So now, yes, yes, you are free to go about your days saying to everyone, but more importantly saying to yourself that yes, 
You are better, eternally better than you deserve. Let me thank him. So Jesus, we've had the gospel proclaimed from the pulpit. Now we need it proclaimed to our souls in a way only your sacrament can do. We do this in remembrance of you. And so would you impress upon us, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. May we literally taste that in this meal, we pray in Jesus' name.